Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Revelation chapter 5. So if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one supplied in the pew in front of you, um, the black Bibles there, and you can find our scripture reading on page 1030. So Revelation chapter 5, and we're going to read that chapter, the whole thing, verses 1 to 14. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me? And follow along as I read. I should just explain one thing, because you may not feel the weight of this passage if you don't know this. John sees this vision, and um, at first there's no one who's worthy to open the scroll. And he weeps. And we might not weep because we don't understand what it means to open the scroll. So basically, the person that can open the scroll is the one who has authority and power to not only reveal what's in it, but execute those plans, um, God's secret plan, in a sense. And so, if there's no one who is worthy, no one who's able to do so, then hope is lost. So hope is at stake. The future is in jeopardy. So that's why John would weep. So let's read this together. Follow along as I read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, 
and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so this morning is a special and unique morning. Um, it's the send-off for the Kirks, as those of you who have been with us for any length of time here recently, you know that's the case. Um, this is their last Sunday with us, and we're sending them off to Indonesia. They don't leave the States until, I think, what, end of July? Is that right? Um, but this is their last Sunday with us here in Wilmington. They fly out to Colorado this Thursday for four weeks of training, and then they're going to spend some time with family, and then, Lord willing, they'll be off at the end of July. So this is a, both a sad and an exciting moment, and we want to send them off well. But, and I know they would be the first to say this, this Sunday is not primarily about them. It's primarily about the glory of God and the good of the nations. It's secondarily about them as sent ones from us and about us as their sending church. So we're here this morning to send them in a manner worthy of God. We want to, we need to take that role seriously, and we're here to commend them to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build them up and carry them faithfully um, all throughout their life and ministry. And then finally, we're here to consider the grand motive that's underneath all of it, whether for their part as goers or for our part as senders. Okay, so our text for this morning comes from this short little letter near the end of the Bible, 3 John, um, written by John the Apostle to a man named Gaius. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there to 3 John, you could just go back a few pages from Revelation where we were reading before. Go slow or you'll miss it. Um, it's on page 1026 in the Pew Bible if you're using that. So John wrote to, to commend this guy, Gaius, and encourage him. And appropriately, in the sending of the Kirks, I think there's cause for commendation of you all um, and for encouragement. So let's dive in. Look at verses 1 to 4. We'll just get a sense of the context here briefly before we dive into our passage that we'll focus on, which is verses 5 to 8. So, verses 1 to 4. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So the Apostle John is the elder, okay, and he writes to Gaius, whom he loves. He calls him beloved. And he prays for him, and he rejoices greatly because some brothers, um, we'll find out in a minute who they are, came back to John and testified that Gaius was walking in the truth. And John had no greater joy than to hear that his spiritual children were walking in the truth. And that might mean that John led Gaius to the Lord. Okay? So walking in the truth means that they were the real deal. Okay? Gaius was the real deal. Anybody that's walking in the truth means that you're 
walk matches your talk, okay? That your life of love is consistent with the truth of the gospel that you confess. So God loved us that way. He loved us not only in word, but in deed. He walked the talk. And those who've been changed by the gospel walk in and live out that same gospel truth in authentic lives of love. So that was true of Gaius, and it gave John great joy. Which brings us here to our verses, verses 5 to 8, the focus of our study. So there's an outline in your bulletin, or you can see the points up here on the screen. Point number one, it's a faithful work. Verse 5, beloved Gaius, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. If, if you're going to understand 2 John or 3 John, you need to understand a little bit of the hospitality culture that was normal and necessary in the first century. Okay, so when you welcomed a stranger into your home, you not only provided material help, okay, you provided proof to your community. Okay, these would have been smaller communities maybe than we're used to, and, and sometimes the community dynamic is more important to them, unfortunately, than it is to us. Um, but you provided proof to your community of the goodwill of your guest. In a sense, you're vouching for them. So their status in your community was tied to, to your endorsement. Okay, so you can see how this would be the case in the church and how it should have been the case in the church. Okay, so have you ever noticed that there are letters of commendation that are referenced in the Bible? Okay, they kind of grease the skids, as it were to make sure that this welcome happened when there was someone who was trustworthy coming from one city to another city. Okay, so listen to Colossians 4.10 right at the end. You don't have to turn there. Um, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul is sending a letter ahead of time commending Mark to the Colossians saying, hey, you can welcome this guy. I vouch for him. Or on the other side, you can have warnings of people that might come, like false teachers or false prophets. So in 2 John 1.10, it says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, teaching that's orthodox in line with the truth of Christ, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. So to welcome someone who's denied the truth should not be received. Now, that doesn't mean that you should never house a non-Christian, okay? That's not what it means. It means don't support a false teacher. That would be to act against the truth and support their work. You don't want to do that, okay? So that is true. You don't want to support a false teacher. And to fail to welcome a true servant is to act against the truth, Okay, so to welcome a false teacher is to act against the truth. To, support a tr- or to fail to support a true teacher is to act against the truth. So look at who is censured by John later on in this little short letter. Look down at verse 9. This is 3 John, verse 9. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing talking wicked nonsense against us. (laughs) Straight up. Love it. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. 
the ones that Gaius did welcome, and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So John calls this guy out and says, to not receive these true servants is to act against the truth, okay? So the relationship between John and Gaius existed and it flourished in the realm of the truth, the centrality of the gospel, not just acknowledged, you know, mental assent, but lived out in real love, real deeds of love and hospitality. And that's what brought them together, and it just brought John joy to know that, that Gaius was living this out. It was at the center of their relationship. Well, there's not exactly a one-to-one correlation, but there's enough that ought to be noted now to say a little over a year and a half ago, the Kirks were strangers to Bethel, right? And they needed hospitality and support so they could get ready to go to Indonesia. Even though they were strangers, you all welcomed them in an exemplary way, and there were many efforts for them. A whole lot of love and faithful work on their behalf. (laughs) It's beautiful. So this is true of the whole church, but I I do want to give a special word of commendation. So I commend you as a church, and I, I want to give a special word of commendation to the missions team. I mean, this team, just so that you know who they are, Russell Brown has served as the leader of that team for six plus years. He's worked tirelessly in that role. Um, Brett and Brady Wharton are also on that team, and Brett is actually going to be transitioning into the leadership role of the team. Sam and, Jan- Sam and Janet Strobert, um, longtime faithful servants there. Gladys Shin, Jean Lee, Marion Howell, and Rick and Lori Chapman. And when we do pray over the Kirks at the end and send them off, we're going to have not only all the elders come up, but also the missions team come up to pray over them. So, They have worked, and they continue to work, even to set up this lunch today, working hard, so that we can send the Kirks well and continue to offer support in loving and faithful ways. Okay, that's what they do, and so many of you have participated in in that work. So the rest of us should, should know and appreciate how much this team does help us as a church to obey this text, to follow this pattern laid out in 3 John. The team serves us as a church family well because they serve our missionaries well on our behalf, and they, they try to call us into that kind of orientation of heart and life, that we would be world Christians, that we would all be missional in our orientation. So Bethel, the first point is a matter of commendation for you. It's a faithful thing that you've done and that you are doing to welcome and send the Kirks. With lots of faithful labor, this has been done over the last 20 months. Let's continue to do this well, which brings us to the second point. Keep doing beautifully, reflecting God's infinite worth. Verse 6, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. That, That word for well can also be translated as beautiful. In fact, it is um, in Mark 14, 6. Remember when that woman came to Simon the leper's house and he, 
she poured out a full flask of very expensive perfume, perfume um, on Jesus, and some were indignant about the waste. But how did Jesus respond? Do you remember? He said, leave her alone. <laughs> Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Same word. So the next phrase, the word for to send them, is almost always used as a technical term for missionary sending. Okay, just a couple examples. 1 Corinthians 16, 6, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Paul being the missionary, I'm going to stay with you, Corinthians, and then you can send me off. Or Titus 3.13, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos, who was a strong, powerful evangelist, on their way, see that they lack nothing. So send them on their way and see that they lack nothing. It kind of explains what that sending is like. So here's how we should send our missionaries. In a manner worthy of God. I mean, how high is that bar? This is not something to be flippant about. This is something to take really seriously. I mean, have you ever seen this happen? Have you ever seen this happen in your own heart? I know, I remember observing times when, you know, missionaries would return back for home assignment and, and they would, like, get people's goodwill donations. Don't do that. <laughs> Love your neighbor as yourself. Like, you don't get them to cheap you know, dispensable stuff. And again, this is not about lavish anything. This is about loving your neighbor as yourself. We want to send these people in a manner worthy of the God. We want, to, we want to care for them well, not give them leftovers. Okay, so we don't want to send them out in a way that would be ugly. No, those who have beautiful feet carrying the gospel ought to be sent out beautifully. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So Bethel, you have done beautifully in the sending of the Kirks thus far. It has been such an encouragement to me to just observe it. They have been such a blessing um, to me. I know they have been such a blessing to the church, and it's just been really a beautiful thing. Let's continue to send them out in a manner worthy of God. Let's send them beautifully, okay? And not just the Kirks, but all of our present missionaries. And this is precedent for how we send all future missions partners as well. So whether that's financial support our prayers, our communication, how we respond when they visit us, in sending representatives to visit them, when they return to spend the last few weeks of their dying parents' life. I can't take the time, but just to know some of the heroic efforts that went out on behalf of, of um, the marshals when they came back to be here for Don's dad, um, his final weeks of life. It's a beautiful thing to see what the missions team did um, in response to that. Or 
when missionaries return and you want to fold them back into the family because they're going to be based out of Delaware instead of Nigeria. This is a call for how we love and care for the singers in that transition as well. So this is a responsibility of all of us. But if, hey, if you want a special part of this beautiful work, talk to Russell or Brett about serving on the missions team. Okay? So that's how we ought to send. And you know what? When you live in such a way as to reflect God's infinite worth, like sending beautifully, it's all for the glory of his name and the good of all people all peoples, okay? That's our purpose statement. So it's right in line with who we are and why we exist. So that's how we ought to send. Now, who should we send? I mean, who should we support? It's a, it's a crazy big undertaking, a lot of money, a lot of prayer, a lot of time. So who should we send? Look at point three, verse seven. All for the sake of the name, verse seven. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So here's the who. Who? Who we should send out? We should send only people who go for the right reasons. And the rightest of reasons is the glory of God's great name for the sake of his name. Okay, so this is why the, the great missionary, the Apostle Paul, went out like this. He said, he said of himself in Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Why? For the sake of his name among all the nations. And the reason is because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if that's true, then of course those who send must go out in that name for the sake of that name because there's only one name above all names. Philippians 2, 9 to 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is an encouragement to us as a church. We should only send those who are driven by a passion for God's name. And thankfully, and of course, this is true of the Kirks, which is why we're so excited to support and send them, because it's just been abundantly clear that that's exactly what's driving them. So Alex and Betsy... I do want to speak to you in this. I want to remind you that this is why you go. And I want to exhort you to keep it as your central driving passion. So as you go, care most what your Indonesian neighbors think of Jesus, not what they think of you. Be obsessed with God's reputation, not your own. Pray and labor to be dead to your desire for your own glory or recognition and alive to God's glory, and you want him to be recognized for who he is. So you do go out for the sake of the name. Go out for the sake of the name. 
Mark 8.34, just again to remind you, I know these are the things that have worked together to get them to this point, but I just want to encourage you by reminding you of, you of these same central truths. Jesus called the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. So that's the opposite of denying Jesus' name. You deny yourself so that you go out for the sake of the name. I read in a Voice of the Martyrs magazine back in 2005 that, quote, some courageous churches in Muslim-dominated Indonesia have a rooster on their steeple. So they will remember not to deny Jesus as Peter did before the rooster crowed. So deny yourselves, not Jesus. We sang a mighty fortress to start this morning. What in the world drives someone to let goods and kindred go? And maybe this mortal life also. How do you do that? Well, listen to Matthew 19. And again, I know this is a text that's precious to Alex and Betsy. Peter said, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, speaking to the apostles, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he speaks to everyone. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And so now I want to kind of stir all of us up and encourage the Kirks by some testimony from people who went out for the sake of the name. So first, Henry Martin was a missionary of the late 1700s, early 1800s. He didn't live very long. He was a missionary to India and Persia. He spent much of his short life translating the Bible into Urdu, Persian, and Arabic, and he also preached the gospel. In his journal, he wrote this. I think this was about nine months before he died. In his his journal, he wrote the following entry on January 16, 1812. Mirza Saeed Ali told me accidentally today of a short poem made by his friend Mirza Kuchut at Tehran in honor of a victory obtained by Prince Abbas Mirza over the Russians. The sentiment was that he had killed so many of the Christians that Christ from the fourth heaven took hold of Muhammad's skirt to entreat him to desist. I was cut to the soul at this blasphemy. In prayer, I could think of nothing else but that great day when the Son of God shall come in the clouds of heaven, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and convincing men of all their hard speeches which they have spoken against him. Mirza Saeed Ali perceived that I was considerably disordered and was sorry for having, re- and he was sorry for having repeated the verse, but asked what it was that was so offensive. I told him, that I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to always thus 
be dishonored. That's the kind of heart we need for the sake of the name. Here's what Livingston, David Livingston, said to the Cambridge students about his leaving the benefits of England. Missionary in Africa. Pioneering missionary. For my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. That's Paul. I don't consider the sufferings of this present world worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. Or Hudson Taylor, great missionary pioneer to inland China, he wrote, it is joy to work for such a master. My soul is often filled to overflowing and it is an honor to be spent in such a cause. If the labor is great and the difficulties numerous and formidable, the strength, all might, according to his glorious power, is greater, and the reward will be so too. Important testimony that we need to hear and receive. We, we also sing a song periodically by Sovereign Grace Music called Let Your Kingdom Come, and I want you to just Think of these words. Do they describe you? Can you sing this with authenticity? And if not, then you need to pray that you can. Your glorious cause, O God, engages our hearts. May Jesus Christ be known wherever we are. We ask not for ourselves, but for your renown. The cross has saved us, so we pray, your kingdom come. And then the chorus, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, so that everyone might know your name. Let your song be heard everywhere on earth till your sovereign work on earth is done. Let your kingdom come. So does God's glorious cause engage your heart? Are you living for the sake of the name? Is that what you want whether it is to go or whether it is to send those who do go. We all need to lay down our small ambitions and aim for something greater. Listen to J. Campbell White. He was the secretary of a layman missionary movement in the early 1900s, right at the turn of the century. He wrote this, Most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husks and ashes. 
in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. The people who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. So Bethel, each of you individually, myself included, how do we define, how do we describe a life well spent? If promoting and reflecting and radiating and sharing the glory of God, the name of God, glorifying God isn't at the center of your definition, then you are going after a superficial, trivial life. Because you know what? Here's where everything is headed. Here's what all of human history is headed. Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And you can participate in that glorious cause or you can live for yourself and it'll be husks and ashes. And if you deny his name, you don't live for his gospel, for his sake and his gospels, he will come and say, I never knew you. This passion should be our passion because it's God's passion. (laughs) This is why God made everything. That's why there's something and not nothing. It's what drives everything that God does. Listen to Isaiah 48, 9 to 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. Why does he do all these things? For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is no idolater. He keeps the first commandment. If he were to fail to keep the first commandment, to have no other gods before himself, to love himself with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, if he were to fail to do that, the universe would tear apart. And it would be profoundly unloving for him to be willing to give us anything less than himself as our greatest good. So his glory and our good are one. And his glory and the good of the nations are one. So missions is at the heart of this glory of God's name, purpose. So what is driving you What wakes you up in the morning? What are you after? What's at the center of your life? Your glory? Your comfort? Your name? Your reputation? Your pleasure? Your entertainment? Just that everybody would like you? Or is there a greater cause? A greater reason for living and doing all that you do? Let's, I I heard this as a title of a message that was like, it was one of those benchmark moments. Greg Livingston, the guy that I think founded Frontiers Missions. Is that right? Anyway, he was an early leader of this missions organization. And that was the title of his message. I heard it 15 years ago, and it just cut me to the heart. Lay down your small ambitions. (laughs) So is there any other greater cause? Let's not have selfish ambition driving us. And let's not 
react to that and have some passionless, passive, ambitionless life. But let's live lives filled with and governed by a sanctified ambition. Not a selfish ambition, but a sanctified ambition. Let's get on board with God's mission. Let's live for something bigger than ourselves. We can do that by sending the Kirks, but also we are called to live out this vision here in Delaware. Now, quickly, what does accepting nothing from the Gentiles mean? Um, that's a little strange, but actually, as you dig into it, it's, it's helpful, very helpful. So that's why I want to speak to it for a moment. Do you see it there? Um, in verse 6? No, verse 7. They, they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Um, why in the world would Gentiles, non-Jews, pagans you know, contribute to a missionary. <laughs> it just kind of confused me. I'm thinking, why, why would they give them money if they don't even believe? Well, this explanation from John Stott's commentary was helpful. Devotees of various religions tramp the roads, you got to get back into the first century, tramp the roads extolling the virtues of the deity of their choice and collecting subscriptions from the public. Thus, one slave of the Syrian goddess has put on record, this is in you know, some ancient documents, how he traveled in the service of his lady and at each journey brought back 70 bags of money. By contrast, Jesus told the 12 and the 70 to take with them no bag. And Paul condemned those who peddle the word of God for profit. So what's the, what's the point there? Well, you can see how in a, in a pluralistic society where there are many gods worshipped, people would want to get on the good side of as many gods as possible, right? Gods and goddesses. You've got to cover your bases so that you'll be blessed and not cursed. So if there were people tramping around, you know, promoting this god or that, well, I better give a little to make sure I cover that base. The goddess of thus and such or the god of thus and such. So if the Christian evangelists and missionaries went out and handled their support that way, what would they be doing? It would be like encouraging non-Christians to buy into the good favor of God. And that would deny the gospel of free grace. There's only one gospel. <laughs> and it was won for us at an infinite cost by the blood of the Son of God. It is spread at a significant cost by the suffering and at times the blood of the servants of God, but it is free for the taking for all who believe in Jesus. So the favor of God is not for sale. It's freely offered. So do you see why if they're going out for the sake of the name and the truth of the gospel, they're not going to receive anything from the Gentiles. They're going to offer the gospel freely. So if we partner with the Kirks and those like them who are going out for the sake of the name, then, next point, we are fellow workers for the truth. The glory of God is the truth. That's the most true foundational reality in the universe. And the only way to know that God is through Christ. This is what we ought to be for. So point four, we ought to support people like these. Verse eight, look at it. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So since this is why they go out, unlike the false preachers in 2 John, remember, 
whom they were not supposed to support. We ought to support people like these, people that go out for the sake of the name. Anybody here want the next Kirk family to move into the farmhouse sooner than later? I hope so. Do you, do you see that word there, ought? We ought to support people like these. How often do you chafe at the word ought? I think we often chafe at the word ought. <laughs> Who says? <laughs> you know, or don't tell me what to do. But you know what? Obligation doesn't have to have negative connotations. Obligation is actually, this kind of obligation at least, is based on divine design. Pineapples ought to be sweet. <laughs> Not sour, right? Okay. Some of you will recognize this cheap shot right here. NFL footballs ought to be fully inflated. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that, Phil. But obligation, okay, so, so let me just go back to serious here before we make the point. Men, Christian men, ought to be strong, humble, Christ-like leaders, not wimpy, defensive, selfish oafs. Any amens? Hopefully from some of the men. Um, so ought doesn't have to be a bad thing. Ought is kind of... It's, it's just divine design worked out. We ought to support people like these. There would be something wrong with us as a church if we didn't support people like the Kirks. We ought to want to be fellow workers for the truth. We should want to promote the truth. The truth can save. The truth of the gospel is the only thing that can save that can free in the ultimate, deepest sense, that can stabilize because our God is a mighty fortress, that can sanctify and a million other wonderful things. So, Bethel, let's do this. Let's keep doing this. Let's pray and lab labor that Bethel will be characterized in our mission's vision and action by this pattern. Don't you want... Bethel to be a seedbed for people who go out for the sake of the name, people who are passionate about the glory of Christ. Don't you want Bethel to be a rich greenhouse where people grow with passion for the gospel? And don't you want Bethel to be a launching pad? What a privilege! a launching pad for people like the Kirks to be sent out well in a manner worthy of God to the ends of the earth for the sake of God's name and the good of many peoples. So let's do it. Oh God, um, by the blood of the eternal covenant, I pray that you would equip Alex and Betsy with everything good that they may do your will, working in them that which is pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ so that you receive all the glory for their work. And as they go out for the sake of your name, 
as Aaron blessed your people and put your name on them, I pray that this blessing um, would once again put your name on them, marked out as your people doing your will on your path. And so, Father, would you please bless them and keep them and make your face to shine on them and be gracious to them and lift up your countenance upon them and give them your blood-bought peace that passes understanding in the matchless and powerful name of King Jesus we pray amen <clears throat>